Welcome to the 24-7 Prayer Podcast. I'm Brian Heasley. And I'm Hannah Heather, and we're so glad that you've joined us today. Brian and I have been chatting with Pete Portal, who um, is working out in Manenberg in South Africa. Um, him and his community serve uh, drug addicts and gangsters out there. They're working in a fairly intense environment, aren't they, Brian? Really, yeah. And somehow, even in our intense interview, we managed to get into delirious lyrics, you two. There's a couple of swear words in there, apologies really? in advance. Yep. Was that you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hannah, potty mouth Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, um, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful story and theirs is a beautiful life lived really on the front lines of mission, prayer and justice. It's a beautiful story of all of those things coming together and, um, and hope in the middle of it all. You know, I kept, as we were chatting with Pete, I kept thinking of that um, Walter Brueggemann quote, Hope does not need to silence the rumblings of crisis to be hope. And I think Pete's story, um, Pete and Sarah's story is such a beautiful example of that, that although there are so many moments of crisis that they are facing day in, day out, the, the song of hope just sounds even louder in those places. So it, it like overflows. I was thinking like you, I was thinking about Romans uh, 15 verse 13, where it says, made a God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope mm. by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of, I guess as you listen to this, guys, just re, just feel the hope amidst all the tension of outworking the faith in a kind of challenging context. Yeah. It's a prayerful story. I, I thought it was beautiful. Just to give you the heads up, there are some conversations we have around death, drug abuse, and some of the more extreme things that happen in this wonderful township. Pete, absolutely lovely to have you with us this morning. Hannah and I have been really excited about uh, just listening to you. I know this is a random question, but can you tell us where are you from? What do you do? Where are you now? Who are you? Just general stuff. Love to hear more about you. God, that sounds like lines from an angsty teen song, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I am Pete Portal. I'm from London originally, uh, but have been living in Cape Town now for almost 15 years. Can you believe it? I moved here when I was 23, and I live in Manenberg on the outskirts of Cape Town, and I'm part of leading Tree of Life, which is a 24-7 prayer community. Amazing. And Pete, why is it that you are passionate about prayer? How has it made a difference in your world? Yeah, I, I'm passionate about growing in prayer. Like I, 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 we, we do a sort of weekly prayer thing every Wednesday evening, actually. Um, and I was just aware, I think, how much I suck at prayer. And that <laughs> is what kind of makes me more passionate about it. You know, obviously, I've got, I suppose, if we're following Jesus, we've all got, hopefully, uh, story of how God has answered prayer and that sort of thing. But I think increasingly I see prayer less as a sort of like um, pulling some levers and getting God to do things for us and more just um, spending time alone with him, delighting in his presence. Mm. And then things kind of come from that. Um, but of course we still, we still intercede, but um, yeah, I think, I think, and maybe that's a stage of life thing. I don't know. I think in my twenties, it was very kind of like, you know, say the right things, positive declarations, anointing of the Holy Spirit, wham, bam, and then we'd see this and that happen. 
Um, and it's not that we don't want to see, you know, lives transformed or a community changed. But I think that has become somehow secondary to just me and Jesus in a room alone together, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I Yeah, my, the jury's still out for me. It's trying to hold those two intention, isn't it, of intercession and warfare prayer, as well as contemplation and silence. How does that work, Pete, in your context? Obviously, we've just jumped straight in here. I'd love to hear what when you say Manenberg and South Africa, and you're an English English guy with a rather nice accent. How does that all work? How does prayer work in your context? And could you just give us a little bit about your context? Yeah, well, you know, God understands my accent, whether I'm in England or South Africa, thankfully. Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> the way prayer works in our context is this, right? So Manenberg shouldn't exist. Manenberg was formed by the apartheid government in the 70s to who forcibly removed those deemed, quote, non-white from the city centre to uh, these kind of dormitory-style houses, flats, uh, 20Ks to the east of Cape Town. Um, so Manenberg itself was founded on this sort of the myth of white supremacy and separate development, which, by the way, was a theological project. Apartheid was started and conceived of by professors of theology. So that's a kind of oh eerie, slightly like spooky mm. warning for us to make sure we're accountable and reading the scriptures right. But. So today, Manenberg really is a fairly inevitable collective trauma response to historic injustice, struggles with um, a lot of uh, drug use and drug abuse um, and gangs and violent activity, a lot of shooting. Recently, we're in the middle of a gang war at the moment, so putting out the washing the other night and you can hear shots going off down the street. And so, so obviously you know, when it's as chronic as that, and bear in mind, you know, if you have had your house bulldozed in the 60s and 70s by a racist regime, and you were sort of thrown into a two-bedroom uh, flat with 12 other people in a community where you actually know no one, um, then guess what? Your response to that is obviously going to be to violently defend your turf at all costs so that you don't get violated again. And so that's really how gangs sprung up in a very reductionistic sort of analysis. And so, you know, these things are chronic. And so what are we going to do? You know, run a couple of programs and life skills things for a couple of guys and, you know, give them a certificate after six weeks and assume that that's going to change a community. Of course it won't. Mm. So what we've come to realize is that Uh, prayer is our absolute lifeblood. We are so pathetically impotent without prayer that living in Manenberg is one of God's absolute greatest gifts to me because it keeps me uh, seeking him. It keeps me uh, kind of pulling on heaven in a way that quite honestly, when I was living in London, I, I didn't feel that urgency, that desperation, that dependence. Mm -hmm. That's so good. I love that phrase, pulling on heaven. Pete, tell me, we're, I'm thinking about you hanging out, you're washing and gunshots and you, you have a wife, you have children, you live as a family in Manenberg. Why have you not walked away? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I'd be lying if I said we didn't sometimes talk about that. And, you know, there's a whole other discussion that we could have around uh, being sensitive to 
your children's needs and not throwing your kids under the ministry bus. And we've seen that happen so many times. But on the flip side, we've also seen so many people retreat to the suburbs because apparently Manenberg's too toxic an environment for good Christians to bring their kids up in. Um, I'm being deliberately facetious here, but you know, it like we veer towards one of those two on a fairly regular basis. But we also figured that um, bringing children up, you know, our home is safe. When I say you can hear gunshots, it's not going on right outside. It's just that at night, everything else is fairly quiet and you begin to recognize the familiar popping sounds. Um, so yeah, that like that's pending, answer pending there, Brian. But like we have been here 15 years. We uh, have you know, great relationship with our neighbours. We live in the Muslim corner of Manenberg, so there was a, some teething issues when we first moved in, shall we say. <laughs> Let's just say the words 24-7 prayer room don't translate particularly well uh, when a newspaper misquotes you on that and local Muslim neighbours read it and figure that you're trying to take over. Uh, but that was naivety, and uh, we've come a long way since then. Pete, I wonder, um, I know that, you know, for you and Sarah, you're story has been marked by lots of moments of beautiful breakthroughs and kind of shining hope but there's also been a lot of grief um in your story I wondered if you know you've any lessons or wisdom that you've learned along the way as you've kind of walked the road between sort of I guess like you say the sort of the toxicity of a place and all that that brings but also kind of the beautiful seeds that you're planting and the hope that springs up in the midst of it how how do you walk that road and do you have any wisdom for anyone walking through a season of grief right now themselves I don't know if I have any wisdom I've certainly got a whole bunch of sort of uh, ways how not to do it um and you you know because because the thing about grief and learning to grieve right is that there's no rule book for it. And they talk about the different stages of grief. And I've, you know, Googled that and it's resonated at various points in my life. But I mean, you know, in the last month, uh, three young men, all of whom were in gangs and all of whom were on drugs and all of whom I loved, uh, have died various different ways. One was shot four times. The other died of, uh, he literally just, uh, collapsed on the floor. He only had one lung and, um, he started coughing apparently and collapsed on the floor, passed out and never woke up. I think he had TB that had gone to his brain. And a third who was in a wheelchair because he couldn't move his legs because he uh, had been shot 12 times and still had bullets in his spine. And it's such a sweet man, you know. Um, they called him plates because he had metal plates in his body. Um, and so, you know, how, how do you grieve that when it's coming at you thick and fast the whole time? Well, I, I don't know the answer, but the, the, what we're learning is that, uh, you know, grieve in community. I think the West particularly, um, I was reading, I think it was N.T. Wright who said something about, you know, when, when we started cremating people when they die, you just kind of press a button and this like coffin just goes into a thing and then out pops a, a jar of ashes and actually seeing dead bodies. Mm. In Manenberg, they have an open casket. So you go to the funeral and you literally see the dead face of your friend or whatever. And it's jarring and it's kind of offensive in its, you know, people are kissing the dead face and touching this, 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 this body. And, and, it, and I find that 
almost offensive to my British sensibilities. But at the same time, there's a, I don't know, there's a, a sort of an extreme kind of um, closure on something of seeing a dead body that I think we miss in the West. Um, I'd never seen anyone uh, dead before I came to South Africa, honestly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, grieve, but then equally grieve, grief isn't just people dying. It's, um, you know, I did my, and this sounds flippant in contrast to those stories, but I did my ACL, my knee, uh, my ACL ruptured and I had to have a whole knee kind of, um, surgery and that's taken ages to recover. And I was chatting to my therapist and they said, actually, you know, you're 38, maybe you're, maybe you're grieving, the fact that you may never play football again, which has been your favorite thing for the last 30 years. And I hadn't thought of it as grief like that, but like different seasons of life, losing people for sure. Uh, at the beginning of 2020, Crew 62, which is a residential ministry we run for gangsters and addicts who uh, it used to be in our home, but is now in a block of flats across the road. That imploded due to the betrayal of one of our dearest, closest friends who I'd been mentoring for the last four years. Um, and so we had to go on a grieving journey of that, which really exposed to me my issues of wanting to be seen as a success and wanting to find my worth in the quote, success and functionality of recovering addicts. So there, I think there are mm. different types of grief that we talk about. Yeah. Um, but certainly, um, yeah, when, when young men lose their lives to bullets or curable diseases, uh, that is a tragedy. But it's not only a tragedy when they die, it's a tragedy that they were even in that circumstance in the first place. So in that sense, sure. it's not just yeah. a trauma, it's a community living in continuous trauma. And that's a whole other discussion. It is. We could, yeah, for sure. And that, But I think what's so kind of profound sometimes when I listen to you and I think about, you know, your context is, like you said, the grief is more raw, you know, and you're more face to face with it. But I think then, you know, the hope sometimes shines even brighter as well. Like I, I it makes me think of that quote. I think it's... um. Karl Barth quoting Nietzsche potentially but something that goes along the lines of like graves are the only place where a resurrection occurs and and that thing of actually in places of deep loss there's actually also that that sense of hope on the other side and could you share with us maybe some some moments of of breakthrough or things that you've seen happen recently like that <laughs> yeah it's all getting a bit bleak isn't it um yeah for sure to answer your question on hope we were recently making a um an updated tree of life sort of uh, short video you know um we made one in 2014 one in 2017 and we realized we were long overdue one and um just you know, I was there for the day with the with the, there was a film crew filming different people in Tree of Life, and I was just there, sort of helping, sort of pepper them with questions and all of that. But I think of you know the young man uh, who we interviewed, who came out of years and years of uh, crystal meth addiction, um, and um, came into Crew sixty two, our residential ministry, saying to me, "Pete, I don't have a drug problem. I don't know why I'm here." And it was only a year later he said to me, "Oh, I realise that I do have a drug problem, Pete." but also that my drug problem is not my problem. As in, it's not the problem. The drug was my very flawed attempt at solving the problem. 
And then he looks yeah. at me and he goes, Jesus is the answer, but it's <laughs> going to take longer than 18 months to get truly free, isn't it? And I remember saying to him, now I think you get it. Like you've not come in for some kind of rehab. We are emphatically not a rehab, but one of your ways of coping was crystal meth and operating with gangs. And you've finally come to realize that um, that isn't a way of coping at all, let alone the problem. Mm. Or I think of a couple who uh, uh, live live on our property and he is six years clean and out of crystal meth and, you know, came to us in 2016 having lived uh, in a burnt out car on the property of his neighbors. And his nickname is The Great Escape because he was shot at six times um, by gangs the week before he came into Tree of Life and uh, none of them hit him. And, you know, he's we've just gone a journey over the last six years of working through the traumas and of uh, deliverance and of learning uh, and receiving the gift of tongues. And now uh, three of the guys who are in Crew 62 are there because they came to live with him and he discipled them into sobriety and then handed them on to us. So it's really the chain of discipleship that, you know, we read in the Gospels uh, and that we just get to carry on, you know, now 2000 years later. And these are th these are just normal stories. I'm not saying we've got hundreds or thousands of these, but pretty much everyone you talk to in Tree of Life will be able to point to, you know, I used to be a Muslim. I used to be on crystal meth. I was living in a car. I was living on the streets. I was, you know, dot, dot, dot. And Jesus mm. changed my life. There's just very clear transformation stories and conversion stories across the board. And it's glorious. That, um, that story weirdly is making me think, what are our ways of coping? You know, I don't have a crystal meth problem, but now would be the time to confess that. Not, no, it wouldn't be the moment, would it? Um, but it's a, it's a poignant question. Um, Brian, you had a question. Yeah. Why does everyone get a nickname in Manenberg? Have you got one? <laughs> um, I've got various nicknames, yeah, that people talk to me that say in front of my face. I have no idea what I'm called behind my back, but I mean, the, the, do, the classic Pete. one is just Whitey. Hey, Whitey. You say, uh, hey, hey, Whitey, Varchanani, Whitey, what are you doing here? Um, and so, you, you know, you learn to say various things. but We're walking and praying. Or, no, we live here. Um, but um, I was, I've got rather chubby toes. So someone called well, like me... like a hobbit. Someone called me potatoes, which... Um, <laughs> Uh, which thankfully didn't quite stick. Or then there's another thing um, uh, that because my nickname, my, my surname's Portal, and there's uh, uh, an, Af uh, uh, an in Afrikaans a pot uh, that you kind of like a, you make a stew on the open fire is called a poichi, uh, and so they called me Poichi Portal or just Poichi or yeah. Anyway, um, but there's some very rude ones as well that I won't say. And to my knowledge, I don't have any rude nicknames. But as I say, you never know what people are saying when you're not around. I had a nickname at school, but I can't tell you what it was. <laughs> That's random. Tell us after, bro. Yeah, some of the time. Pete, I was just thinking as well about like, obviously we're sitting here in England, even though we're both Irish, and uh, we we listen to and hear a lot of podcasts, and this obviously is a podcast, and we're trying to dig a little bit deeper. We're not saying our podcast is better than anyone else's. Definitely not. But we just... <laughs> but No, sorry, where am I going with this? I'm waffling. The, but we hear a lot about, like, 
boundaried rule of life, Sabbath, protect yourself, all that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, you know yeah. and, and we really, I, and we love it. Obviously, 24-7 prayer, we, it's all about contemplation. But there is this idea of contemplative activism. And how do you see that worked out in your context? Because like, you know, people take a, we, we had someone we wanted to talk to yesterday, but he was on his digital Sabbath, as it were, and, you know, we couldn't speak to him or whatever. How does that, how does that Western approach to Sabbath, you know, how does that outwork itself in a situation where you are and you're working with guys who are in various states of needing help and probably wouldn't respond too well if you said, I can't help you today, I'm on my Sabbath. Have you got any thoughts on that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if you want to hear them, but I mean... Oh, no, we do. We really do. So... A digital Sabbath is a Western luxury, right? If you don't have a phone or connectivity, a digital Sabbath is the most pretentious sounding thing I've ever heard. Now, I'm sure whoever is on the digital Sabbath is an awesome, amazing person. Um, the, The point is not slamming anyone who takes a digital Sabbath. The point is to recognize uh, that that is a Western concept, as much as date night is for couples. I remember chat- chatting to Jackie Pullinger once, and she was talking about um, couples who come to Hong Kong demanding date nights. Date nights? Date nights? Where are date <laughs> nights in the Bible? <laughs> um, now, she's obviously the extreme. But then, you know, let's talk about fasting. If you're begging for food, what does it look like to fast? Um, let's talk about solitude. If you're living in a one-bedroom Uh, crumbling sort of uh, self-built shack in the backyard of someone without running water with 12 other people. What does Mm -hmm. solitude look like? You know, what does simplicity look like if you don't have a toilet uh, and you don't have enough clothes to wear? You know, great. We do sort of wardrobe sales and we kind of, you know, minimalism. Ugh, my goodness. what What a ridiculous concept. We've got so much in the West that we need to call kind of not having loads and loads of stuff something and then it becomes trendy like the anyway i'm gonna go i'm gonna get really ranty about it so i've got to stop but yeah i think i think here's but then here's the thing we can then veer the other side and be like right rule of life or spiritual disciplines or simplicity or sabbath or fasting a a western concepts of course they're not they're ancient as our faith and so what we're trying to work out is what does that look like uh, contextualized, uh, and what does that look like arising out of Manenberg rather than rising out of Los Angeles or Portland, Oregon? Um, because you know it, it, these things are important. What does it look like to tithe and to give when you don't have any money to feed your children? You know, or, you know there are stories about that in the Gospels, aren't there? About the the, the widow with her two little pennies or whatever and like the so so it's not that it doesn't relate i just think that we often view a western lens as normative and Mm. that is deeply problematic and again that's something that manenberg is helping me unlearn in my own discipleship that's brilliant pete just following on from that we here in the west we talk about there's a lot of talk about awakening and revival and Mm. i prefer the word awakening to revival personally what what would an awakening look like in your context? Yeah, this is something I think about a lot, you know. Um, I think when one bears in mind that awakenings 
Okay, so firstly, with revival, the problem is I think often we create secular, sacred divides, and revival just means we turn up in, to church loads and loads and loads and pray loads and loads and jump up and down. And that's obviously another caricature, so it's easy to kind of knock down a straw man. And I get that it's not only that, but in Mannenberg, if you bear in mind that the main economy in Mannenberg that is thriving most is the drug trade, then one's got to believe i think it was um justin welby once said to the chief executive of wonga you know the loan the payday loan people you know we we don't want to legislate you out of business but the church would love to compete you out of business um meaning what if the church was able to come up with uh just uh ways and compassionate ways of helping people in debt pay them off um rather than just sort of uh, marching up and down outside the wongo offices saying you know you guys suck um and so i think in the same token you know like what what would awakening look like in manenberg it would look like local businesses spring up and bring an economy that would knock the drugs trade for six um now of course if uh, that's happening then you'd imagine and you'd hope that the awakening would include decreased drug usage and therefore drug related crime statistics you would hope that in a community where 40% of manenberg largely speaking are muslim that we would see muslims having dreams and visions of jesus um and we would hope um that actually uh, manenberg would become you know if you look at a map of cape town manenberg's actually smack bang in the middle of the metropole it's not it's not far to the east and i'd hope that we would begin to see uh, and this is another thing jackie pullinger once said to us she said you got to make the rich jealous of the poor wow. um and mm. we're beginning to see rich suburban people come into manenberg and say whatever it is that you guys have got here, we want it. And I think we would begin to see a kind of reverse flow from the center of community and society to what had been the margins. And so then a recentering of a whole city. I love those thoughts. I think that's, it's a beautiful vision. I'm really interested to know your thoughts on this, Pete, and feel free to be as ranty or otherwise as you'd like but um we've obviously seen you know in recent days quite a I don't know what we'd want to call it maybe a shaking in terms of Christian leadership around the world you know we've seen lots of fallen heroes lots of kind of structures and systems of the way we've always kind of done things or we, the way we've recently done things I should say actually um you're working obviously within quite a specific context, but I'd love to know your thoughts on kind of where are we going wrong in the sphere of Christian leadership? Do you have any thoughts to bring on like what kind of qualities and character do we need in this next season? Like if we want to pave a better way forward as a global church, um, do you have any wisdom on that? I know you've obviously written a book recently on how to be unsuccessful, which I haven't yet been able to read, but I'm very excited to. Um, could you tell us, how how could we be unsuccessful Christian leaders, please, Pete Portal? It's <laughs> a big question, I know. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, for those who haven't got a copy of the book in front of them as you're listening to this, firstly, what are you doing? Order one now. Uh, but secondly... <laughs> You know, the un in that is in brackets. The point being that the world is trying to 
tell us or give us, the world creates desires in us that it then tries to fix or satiate with counterfeit uh, stuff, right? So, mm. so the un is, is, is recognizing that to be a true success in a kingdom definition of the world will probably necessarily look unsuccessful in the eyes of the world that falls for the kind of noise profile influence numbers with a smattering of mindfulness and pseudo buddhism to kind of manifest some good feels and so i think you know like dallas willard once said the mega church is a swan song of a system that has absolutely nothing to do with christianity wow so if then Success from a church leader's point of view looks like numbers, influence, buildings, budgets, which I know if, if, if you push people, they say, well, of course, it's not about that. But, but I'm like, I think it is about that. I think, I think <laughs> we are obsessed with that. We're obsessed with influence and mm. not in a great way. I mean, if you look at Jesus's analogies of how he chose to describe the kingdom of God, you've got a mustard seed and you've got yeast so you're talking about fairly unremarkable looking, right. so not shiny teeth and permatans, which is, again, a caricature, but we get it. We laugh because it, we, we understand where that comes from. Feels like you're um, talking about me, Pete. Sorry? Yeah, that's you, Brian, basically. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just ad hominem attacks on my new method of podcasting. Um, but no, um, <laughs> you know, like ye- yeast and mustard seeds are so unremarkable. You would just overlook them. Right. Um, but at the same token, they were the things that Jesus used to describe the easily missable but quietly transformative effect of the kingdom of God. I mean, I, I think of a, a I think of a conversation, Hannah, that I had with an old battle axe of a Christian, old intercessor <laughs> who lives in Franschuk, and she she must be in her mid seventies now, and um, you know had decades of stories of amazing testimonies of the faithfulness of God throughout her life. And I was just talking to her, this was a couple of years ago, and I was just talking about how exciting it was and things in Manenberg were growing, but we needed more volunteers and we're looking for more, you know, partners to fund what God's doing and isn't it exciting? And she just started, she just put her hand up. She said, whoa, 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 stop, Pete, stop. She said, growth is not always healthy, right? She said, Mm. if you grow in number, but you haven't grown in the presence of Jesus, and love for the poor, then you haven't grown at all. All you've done is swelled. And swelling is not a sign of health. It's a sign of sickness. And I think that is one of the most significant things someone's ever said to me. Because Mm. I see every, I mean, as as I see online, um, someone talking about, you know, uh, the new ground for the church is all online. You know, it's all going to be, and you're like, what? So basically we're saying anyone without an iPad is doomed to destruction. It's like, of course it can't all be online in this post-COVID new normal. We've got to be embodied presence. We've got to go deep with the few. We've got to recognize. And I think that I think the obsession with growth is that we put ourselves in the center of it all. But we've got to recognize that we may never see the fruit of discipling a handful of people over years and years and years but they may do. Um, and we've got to be okay with that. Why do we pray? Mm. Do we pray because we want to see cities and nations transformed? Yeah, of course. But ultimately, if that's our driver, and if we don't see that, 
then guess what? We're going to become embittered and de-incentivized, disincentivized. Mm. But if we're praying because we are in love and delight in Jesus, and an overflow of our delight in Jesus is that necessarily things are transformed around us. Great. But I think we've I think it's a uh we've misunderstood means and ends, basically. And I think it is killing the church in the West. I think that that line that you shared, Pete, about the yeast and the mustard seed, um, you said it's so unremarkable that you can overlook them. I just wonder what would happen in the global church if all Christian leaders wanted that to be their cv <laughs> yeah um, i mean myself included hannah you know like i'm i'm right i'm talking to myself here the reason i've got all these views is because i recognize in my shadow self the desire for profile influence numbers noise and all the rest of it and yet you know which is why one of my favorite quotes i came across recently is uh, someone once said the church is like a swimming pool all the noise comes from the shallow end <laughs> and I want to be I want to be in the deep end of things just yeah. quietly getting on with things rather than splashing around with whatever the spiritual version of rings and floats. Yeah, it's good. It's like um when Jesus says to be the salt of the world, it's like if you eat a meal and and you're talking about the salt after that there's a problem. <laughs> it's almost that thing of like how can we be that unnoticed beautiful presence making things more beautiful because we're there and not um, not being the main ingredient. Yeah. One of the chapters in my book is entitled Depth Over Noise, Why Influence is Different to What We Have Been Told. And looking at what true influence looks like from a kingdom perspective is very different to what the world models for us influence looking like. Maybe we should bring back that old delirious song, I Want to Go Deeper. Do you remember that? Uh, no, I think that might have been before. I think it might have been before you were born, Pete. Hannah's looking at me. But do you not know that song? I think it's before our time, Brian. There's another delirious song. It talks about dances that dance upon injustice. And I was thinking about that as well and thinking, um, you know, how, how uh, just thinking about sort of dirty feet, getting our feet dirty. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, to go back to one of the things you were talking about, Hannah, you know, if if we're, if our goal or our kind of, subconscious life vision is one of upward mobility comfort clean feet etc yeah. then and if jesus when he came to earth moved towards poverty brokenness despair quote sinfulness and we're going the opposite direction then how can we say we're following Jesus? And right. is it any surprise to us that we might be feeling? And I think I've, this is what I see in the West a lot and in richer communities, that the church is just a bit bored. I think people are just bored, um, you know, because we've been splashing around in the shallow end and, uh, you know, lying on a lilo and all of the rest of it. But like there's there, there's a job that we've got to do, you know, mm. and and and. Mm. I think a lot of us are kind of like lions being raised in captivity. And, and, you know, I went to London Zoo once and it was pouring with rain. And I went and looked at the lion who was just sitting in the corner, just sort of bleak with his life. You know, you think, man, this is meant to be the, you know, he, he just looked a shadow of what a lion should look like. And I think sometime, you know, he had all the food he needed. He was absolutely fine and safe and all the rest of it. But he wasn't living out his God-given potential by any means. Mm. Wasn't, wasn't living his best life. Oh, it's like in Jurassic Park when they put the goat out and then the dinosaur doesn't come and he's like, he's meant to hunt. Mm. <laughs> exactly. 
Pete, we've got one last question as we draw this to a close. Sorry, we don't want to... Tell us one experience of prayer you will never forget. <laughs> um, yeah, you guys will have heard this, but some of your listeners won't. Um, and that was um, when a young man called Marwan came to live with us in our house. And this was back in 2016. He was a Muslim. He was on heroin. He was a, a member of a gang called the Dacha Kopa or the DK, which translated into English just means the marijuana heads. So doesn't doesn't translate super mm. well although there are there, there are such funny names of gangs there's one called the kgb which means the kakhrivalika bastards which is like the the shit grievous bastard he, oh i probably can't say it. anyway it edit that bit we'll um see. but um no he came from the dacha Kopa, uh which are a gang he was in on heroin he was in islam and he came and he was cold turkeying off heroin in our home and um had no experience of jesus at all but um, as he was sweating and vomiting and uh, body pain and ache, uh, a song called No Longer Slaves, um, a worship song, came on because we were kind of, you know, just trying to sort of worship around him as he was detoxing. And as the song finished, he just kind of croaked from his bed. Um, Will you play that again? Will you play that again? So we did. And we all just gathered around him praying in tongues. And he started praying in tongues, just copying us, started praying in tongues. And as he was praying in tongues and as that song played, his withdrawal pains would go. Wow. And that evening he came to a worship night wrapped in a duvet, didn't know what a worship night was, um, but the band just uh, started with that song and he jumped in the middle and he just said to everybody, will you pray for me? And everybody prayed around him in tongues. He started jumping up and down, jumping up and down. And he said, my pain has finally gone. My pain's gone. And this was like wow. 24 hours after coming into the house. Amazing. So like heroin withdrawal doesn't, doesn't leave your body that quickly. Uh, but he was basically healed of the with painful withdrawal of heroin through praying in the spirit and worship. And it just, it just struck with me, again, that that is conventional, normative Christianity. I'm not saying if... If someone's on heroin, you shouldn't give them methadone or this and that. We don't, but we we pray with them and give them whatever they need and believe that the gospel is more powerful than addiction. Um, wow. So that's just one that just springs Amazing. to mind straight away. But um, yeah, uh, it was it was glorious, and we are hungry to see more of that. Come on, Pete. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Really appreciate you giving your time to Hannah and I and uh, bless you and all you do. We, we love you. We think you're fantastic. Thank you. Such a pleasure, you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the 24-7 Prayer Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our work, please do visit 247prayer.com.